What does human rights have to do with the global information environment? We regularly read news reports about disinformation and misinformation and the spread of hate speech on social media. These disturbing developments have implications for a range of individual rights and freedoms, as well as for the state of the digital public sphere. I'm Sushma Raman, and this is Justice Matters. Joining us today to discuss these developments is Phil Howard, a professor of internet studies at the University of Oxford and a fellow at the Carr Center. Howard investigates the impact of digital media on political life around the world and is a frequent commentator on global media and political affairs. His research has demonstrated how new information technologies are used in both civic engagement and social control in countries around the world. Phil, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So as we get started, it would be wonderful if you could share with our audience how you define uh, disinformation and misinformation and how you connect it to the world of human rights. Well, I define disinformation as the very purposeful generation of fake news, um, lies with an ideological spin and conspiracies. It's, it's the purposeful side that makes disinformation uh, distinctive. Um, I think misinformation is slightly different in that it's it's uh, sometimes it's constructed purposely, but it's very subtle. It's not um, part of a big manufactured information operation. We often don't know when we're sharing it. Perhaps it's um, a commentary, a political spin with a slightly doctored photo, and it's it's usually not as uh, aggressive, aggressively marketed as disinformation. I think one of the important distinctions between these two things is that people don't usually know when they're sharing malinformation and um, when they're sharing misinformation. And disinformation usually has a, a big organization behind it. So when you say big organization, what do you mean by that? Is this sort of a structured organization or is this really a more informal network of people with shared values and perspectives and a, perhaps a political agenda? I think it's it's often the former. It's, it's often a, a formal organization in the sociological sense with uh, resources and budgets and uh, receptionists and desks and office space, right? These are usually organizations that have hiring plans and performance bonuses. They are often uh, foreign states, uh, so military units that have been retasked to doing uh, disinformation or uh, foreign media organizations uh, such as Russia Today or CGTN, the Chinese, uh, Chinese state-backed operation. Sometimes, unfortunately, they're our own political parties uh, because increasingly in, in uh, democracies we find political parties hiring consultants and PR firms to do the same systematic kinds of information operations that we that it used to be just dictators doing. So yes, they, they tend to be very formal. Once in a while, there's a political candidate or a social movement that manages to tap into uh, how you described it, a network, a network of actors who, who come together, they've got an ideological package and they, they push, it over, push it out over social media. But even then, when we, when we dig into them, when we research them, we often find that there's uh, a money trail, right? There's financing behind these, these networks. And there, there often is some kind of social organization that, that helps give, the, give their information operation some real clout 
some real punch. So when you say money trail and finances, can you describe what kinds of resources are behind disinformation? Where are these revenue sources coming from? And how easy is it to even access this sort of information? That's a fabulous question because it's uh, it's tough to investigate, uh, I think, the, these money trails. If, uh, if we're talking about the big operations that are supported by the Russian government or the Chinese government or or Iran or Turkey, there's a, there's a number of countries that maintain these organizations. They are, we think, financed uh, on the order of hundreds of thousands of, of dollars worth of uh, staff and uh, technology. We think, depending on where they sit in a government's military structure or foreign affairs structure, we think they support their diplomats, national diplomats, they uh, support their, their own country's leaders, right, to try to protect, defend the reputation of their leaders. And these are day jobs. These are full-time day jobs. And sometimes one of the odd things we find when we study these things, you can actually tell that the accounts maintained by these large organizations are active during the working hours of the country that's supporting the campaign. So sometimes one of the best identifiers of an information operation launched from China is that it's, uh, the accounts are really active during working hours in Beijing. Uh, and then uh, overnight in Beijing, the activity drops down. The same thing in, in Russia. So often there are these little telltale signs that suggest where, where the account managers are. Tracing the money can be, can be very difficult. Um, sometimes we, we get information about the ads that, that these organizations pay for. So you may remember in the 2016 election in the U.S., there was this incident where Facebook reported how many rubles were spent on ads by the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg. So, so we, get, we get a sense of the ad revenue that these social media firms can, uh, can generate when they take money for, politi- for political ads. So how much does the scope of disinformation then transcend the borders of the nation state in which these actors are placed? Is this focused domestically to retain political power or is it really focused globally to either improve the status and standing of the nation and its leaders or to perhaps cast dispersions on other nations and their leaders? I think it's a it's a complex uh, it's a complex menu of possibilities here. Unfortunately, it's uh, during election times in authoritarian regimes. These operations are used to uh, help deliver the vote, help bring people out, or or bring bring party supporters out. Unfortunately, they are also used during uh, an election time in uh, democracies. They're used during crises, um, complex humanitarian disasters. And you asked me earlier about, about why this is relevant for human rights. I think um, increasingly these operations are used whenever a government is getting criticized for abusing human rights. Uh, the treatment of the Uyghurs in uh, northwest China, um, the um, uh, treatment of the Rohingya uh, genocide in Myanmar. Uh, there have been occasions where social media misinformation has touched off riots in uh, Ireland and uh, uh, Pakistan. So it's definitely a global problem, a global phenomenon. And it's a toolkit, unfortunately, that uh, many different kinds of political actors can, can draw from. 
terrific. I was actually going to revert back to the human rights question a little later because I felt that there's different points of connection to the human rights movement and this issue of disinformation. And I think you've touched on one, which is the treatment of either minority or marginalized communities and the ways in which they are depicted online. But I imagine that there are other human rights ramifications as well. And I'm wondering if you've thought through that. Yes, I think I think we're at the stage of um, starting to map map out the, the contradictions and opportunities for putting a human rights frame on misinformation. On the one hand, we uh, I think misinformation is the public policy problem that can complicate all other pu- public policy problems and anybody's uh, claim to having their human rights uh, abused could be undermined by a significant misinformation campaign from from a nation state. I think there are there are many examples now of not not major superpowers but um, regional governments using misinformation to uh, trigger attacks on ethnic minorities to defend their uh, political figures who are accused of corruption uh, to bring down bring down political opponents at election time and and those are modes of interference with our right to vote they're modes of means of interfering in uh, our ability to participate in free and fair elections so i think I see misinformation as the one as one of the critical issues that affects all other human can affect all other human rights claims. Um, but I'm unfortunately, I think in international law, we still have something of a muddle of rights um, to media access. The, the, there are, there are a number of media protections and freedoms guaranteed in the in the Universal Declaration of, of Rights, but. It's difficult to know when regimes are violating, particularly Article 19 or or some of the other freedom of information access rights that we have from uh, from regional regional governmental agencies. So, it's it, misinformation is complex, and I think we're still figuring out how to how to wrestle with it in the uh, with a human rights frame. So, I'd like to touch on the issue of the COVID pandemic which has been a public health crisis, but also a disinformation crisis. And I'm wondering if you have looked into the issues of disinformation surrounding the pandemic and particularly its impact on low-income marginalized communities or even in the global South. I have, and actually I'm glad you asked me this because this may help, help me give you a better answer to your previous question on the human rights frame. So we recently did a study of how the major technology platforms profit from COVID-related misinformation. And there have been many teams that have explored how the content of COVID misinformation flows across Facebook and Twitter, uh, into YouTube and across Reddit over multiple platforms. This particular project, we wanted to look to see how the major technology providers um, profit by providing the back end, the infrastructural support for websites that um, target minorities and the poor for misinformation about fake cures, right? Coconut water as a possible cure. This was one of the um, one of the tropes that was passing around in India much a lot this summer. 
And there is a, a fairly complex network of uh, websites, profiteers, who will sell fake cures and T-shirts and baseball hats. They protest lockdown measures. They protest public officials and um, spread fake news about uh, the causes and consequences of COVID. It turns out that a significant amount of this content directed at U.S. social media users is hosted in Canada on Cloudflare servers. We don't actually know why. We're still trying to figure out why this would be, but upwards of 90% of all the misinformation directed at U.S. citizens is hosted on Cloudflare servers in Canada. Now, in conversation with, with different um, human rights lawyers, we've come to think that Canada has treaty obligations to protect U.S. citizens um, because this is a mode of interference with the quality of life for, for people in the U.S. And we believe that Canada may have an obligation to act to protect the rights of U.S. citizens to have um, reasonable access to accurate information about COVID. Now, we're still composing this argument, um, but I think this is an example of how important it is to trace the money flow behind this information infrastructure. And I think it's a good example of how different countries, nation states, do have obligations to protect citizens, even in other nation states. So you bring up an interesting point there, Phil, which is the obligations and accountability of certain companies. And I'm wondering about how much do we focus on the social media platforms, the servers, and other kinds of technology platforms that are being used and misused versus the people who are actually generating the disinformation? So this is a fabulous question because um, it's, I think most, most experts now uh, work on the problem of misinformation would agree that we need long-term strategies, right, that involve um, educating young people about digital, their digital health uh, information habits. We need long-term civic engagement strategies that actually have, have not, nothing to do with any particular technology platform, right? We just, we, we want to help citizens be better citizens, diversify their information sources, and um, learn more about history and the world around them. That requires uh, investment in education, investment in um, Voter, uh, voter enfran enfranchisement programs, voter awareness programs. Then there's the technical side, right? And that is uh, about direct engagement with the platforms and engineering teams. Because even if you invest in the long-term health of um, citizens uh, in a country, it's still the social media platforms that serve up large amounts of misinformation in the two or three days before people have to vote. It's still those, those social media platforms that can, can prevent a public health message from reaching a, a large number of people uh, and helping people understand, understand the nature of the crisis. So the solution is probably has to be at least two-pronged, right? The long-term investment in civic engagement and close watch of some of the engineering decisions, the technical fixes that would... Um, significantly improve public life. So you've touched on the spread of disinformation in an intentional way by various nation states. I'm wondering if you can talk about the United States at this point and the 
role of disinformation in the past few years by elected officials and others in the public sphere around election integrity, even the COVID vaccine. And what does this imply for the U.S. as we look to the future? Well, I think, unfortunately, a lot of the particular tools and tricks of misinformation uh, have been developed in the U.S. over the last three or four years. Um, It requires rhetorical flair, which some political leaders have. It requires savvy, social media savvy, knowing how to play with the algorithms to to get um, get your perspective across. And I think... I think we're at a stage now where the social media firms have demonstrated that they can act when they when they want to, right? So they they have acted to take away accounts from the most um, the most poisonous of public figures. They can they have done some proactive things on COVID misinformation. Uh, it turns out it's it's actually quite difficult to find COVID misinformation on YouTube because YouTube has been particularly aggressive at. Um, promoting high-quality information, right? That's one of the solution sets. Um, so I think, I think a lesson, though, is that we have to be vigilant, um, that social media platforms have to work regularly to call misinformation from their, their um, servers. I also think we've learned that we're past the point of industry self-regulation, especially the most recent revelations from from the Facebook whistleblower, it's pretty clear not only do they, at least Facebook, certainly Facebook, not only do they understand how misinformation spreads across their platforms, but they've demonstrated that they want the profits that come. They want the revenue stream that comes from having sensationalist, extremist, conspiratorial content. And in the U.S. context, that stuff is... um, uh, comes from the white supremacist groups. It's particularly sexist. It's from the the far right, and I I don't mean small conservatives. I mean the hard hard right generates that misinformation, and the firms seem to want that want that the revenue from those that sensational content. So in the U.S. context, I think unfortunately there's a lot of innovation that happens in in U.S. politics, and I think it's um, time for for public some public oversight of the firms. And how much of this oversight and regulation needs to occur at a national level versus really more globally, given that these platforms and companies have a global reach? Well, so I like that question because I think you're leading me there. I mean, my my solution is that it it really does need to be global. In the U.S. context, it's difficult to know what federal regulator would would step in and help with any of this. Um, it probably would not be the FCC or the FEC, the Electoral Commission. I think um, it's the states that do most of the have most of the oversight um, on problems like this, and it's probably state elections officials who would be in particularly good positions of authority to help clean up um, the misinformation problem. Uh, especially around election time. But as you say, the sources of misinformation are, are often overseas. The, 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 most, um, the most violent outcomes appear to be in other countries, right, where, where um, communities are really pitted against each other. And uh, at some point, we need some international, some high-level and international leadership 
Um, I think this whistleblower, this Facebook whistleblower, has also demonstrated that um, the firms themselves can't or won't act, and that a national regulator probably would not have helped here either. Um, so the solution is probably going to involve the European Commission in some way. Um, it's possible that the United Nations can sponsor some high-level, high-level, um, high-level conversations about what data needs to be shared or how the firms can be accountable. But yes, the U.S. is certainly not the only country suffering from political misinformation. So you had talked earlier about the difference between disinformation and misinformation, where you categorized more intentional manipulation by institutional actors, often state actors, and then the acts of perhaps being manipulated or forwarding or sharing information that you might think is true or you would like to believe is true that relates to you, resonates to you. And I'm wondering, what are the ways in which we need to think about individual duties and obligations in this regard, right? Like how do individuals act in this uh, new landscape uh, where everyone can be a content creator and disseminator? Well, in a sense, the, um, one of the most important solutions to misinformation and disinformation is, is, uh, lies in our individual duty to read content before we share it. Right. In most most studies of, of what can curb disinformation, it's it's getting people to fully have a look at the the tweet before they forward it to share to read the news article um, before they prov- distribute it to friends and family, um, and that's one of those uh, civic information habits that would be would be um, good to encourage everyone to have. I think we do have an inform- I do think I think we do have a duty to check out information and sources before just helping helping to distribute what they say. I think there's also something of a duty to um, for a good citizen to try and have a couple of news sources to diversify their own news diet. So if, if we're primarily liberal, having one conservative outlet, or if we're primarily conservative, having one liberal news source um, can help help us build empathy with communities that we don't have direct contact with, help us appreciate the arguments that come from the other side of the political spectrum. So those are some of the duties um, and I think that I think we have, have to have and take seriously in the modern information environment. As you're talking, I'm thinking about the struggle in many contexts where official sources of news might be disinformation and unofficial from community journalists or activists might actually be far more accurate and truthful. So how does one, even in this very complex information ecosystem, develop the capabilities and networks to discern and differentiate between these different sources of information and their reliability? I think this is one of the the grand challenges of modern citizenship, right? It's um, figuring out who who to trust for what kinds of information, and um, I think uh, I, I think a lot depends on what kind of regime we're living under. If we're living in a roughly electoral democracy, then for the most part, independent journalists tend to professional journalists tend to produce high quality findings. Uh, political parties say things that uh, we should treat with a little bit of suspicion. And as long as a public regulator appears independent and doesn't have, uh, doesn't suffer from political interference, we 
should trust information from those kinds of organizations, most of the world does not live in, under those under those kinds of circumstances. So citizens, I believe citizens develop a sense of which regulators are independent, which court systems and judiciaries are um, seem to be acting with responsibility, and which political figures can be trusted more than others. I think regardless of whether you live in a in a form of democracy or in a, in a form of um, authoritarian, hard or soft, um, an authoritarian government, the social media firms do provide the infrastructure that lets for that allows for massive repetition, and it's that that massive layers of it's those massive layers of rep repetition around a piece of misinformation that actually cause the political damage. So, I think. Governments and civil society groups, we need to be constantly vigilant in terms of evaluating who we trust and when. And then the technology firms, we need to be vigilant about whether those firms have the decent internal checks to, to stop misinformation from, being, uh, from blanketing a society in, in a massively repeti repetitive way that prevents, that prevents a systemic systemic problem of, of misunderstanding. I think a good example of this might be around climate change. Right? So there's, there's strong scientific consensus about the causes and consequences of climate change and what we need to do, um, but it's uh, different political actors will still activate this trope that there's uncertainty or that we need to teach the controversy, and the social media firms allow for the rapid repetition of that. Teach the controversy, it's, un, it's uncertain, trope. Um, and that's where we end up with this, this, we're still in something of a conversation over what the, what the consensus is. We're very excited to welcome you to the Car Center this academic year to be affiliated with us. And I'm wondering if you could share a bit about your research plans during your fellowship year with us. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm excited to be part of the community. I am um, uh, on one of your kind introductions, I'm uh, developing uh, some interesting ideas for working in Brazil for the next next few months. I think um, Brazil is certainly one of the democracies that uh, is is going to have some electoral challenges uh, ahead ahead of it, and trying to get the elections administrators there ready to manage uh, the the process of of voting is going to be an important um, an important project for me. I want to keep going with the COVID misinformation, misinformation research and try to try to work out what um, a more nuanced argument about what obligations countries have to protect their own citizens or the citizens of other countries from um, from health misinformation, and then trying to trying to spend some um, trying to figure out what the international opportunities might be. Uh, since, as you said, it's it's a global problem with global consequences and the. The players who are good and the players who are bad are distributed internationally. There's got to be a way of, of um, coordinating some action. The technology firms have, um, almost all of them, have signaled that they would like some sort of light touch regulation, that they're, they're ready to have some uh, have the goal, goalposts defined. But governments don't seem to be ready to, to set the rules, or some governments are setting the wrong rules, right? or, set, or being too aggressive or... or, or um, not developing guidelines that will be healthy for citizenship. So um, 
making sure that we have a sense of what policy regulation would be good for transparency and democracy and, and good governance and, and getting those standards distributed internationally. That's, that's sort of one of the things I'm, I'm eager to try, to try and work on for the next year. Thank you so much for your work, Phil Howard, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for the conversation. This podcast is produced at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Learn more about our work at carrcenter.hks.harvard.edu and connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you like what you hear, you can tune into more episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm.